Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Psychology Sisters podcast. Before jumping into today's episode, we would like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Arabakul, Waramai, and Darul peoples on which the Psychology Sisters podcast is recorded today. We acknowledge both their history and their living present, as well as future generations. We invite you to take a moment to pay your respects to the traditional owners of the land in which you are joining us on today. This episode is sponsored by our brand new six-week anxiety e-course, a self-paced course dedicated to deepening your understanding of the hows and why of your anxiety, as well as teaching you the strategies that really work. If you'd like to feel more calm, confident, and empowered with your anxiety, head to the links in the show notes for more information. Welcome back to another episode from the Psychology Sisters. We are two passionate professionals on a mission to deepen your understanding around mental health and start the conversations to break down stigma. Hosted by Kat, a registered psychologist. And Amy, a registered psychotherapist. From building our own online private practice, the Psych Collaborative, to creating an e-course to help you care for your anxiety, we are so dedicated to bringing good quality, evidence-based information to you in easily digestible and accessible ways. Together we dive deep into the wonderfully complex world of psychology. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode. Today we have the magnificent Maddie joining us to talk all things core beliefs. But before we get into today's episode, we might jump into our pit and peaks of the week. Maddie, take it away. What is your pit and peak? I like magnificent Maddie, by the way. (laughs) My pit for the week I have had a very neutral week this week where I feel like nothing is either overly exciting or very bad. So my pit is I've had a toothache that I've never get and I think it's because I clench my jaw really bad when I sleep and I think I'm grinding my teeth. And I only do this when I get stressed and I was like, am I stressed? Because nothing's really happening. So I don't feel like I'm stressed, but I've been watching heaps of crime. And Alfie's been barking a little bit at nighttime and I think I've just like put myself into a state where I'm a bit on edge when I'm going to sleep. So I'm grinding my teeth and I have a toothache. So that is my pit. My peak, I would say more like a gratitude and that is on Tuesday, at least in Newcastle, it was raining and it made me really (laughs) grateful that I work from home and that I could just do all my clients from home, but also I could kind of just sit and do my notes and I didn't have to go anywhere. My hockey was cancelled and I just was so grateful for working from home and I think I was talking to my partner and he, because he works on a construction site and he was like, oh, I wish I was working from home. And I was like, I actually am very, very grateful (laughs) for our setup. On those days, we really appreciate Oh, not and you know what also I appreciate not having to sit in traffic not having to commute in the cold get out of bed super early mm. it's like ah oh, I can stay in the warmth of my cozy home yes it is very very lucky we can work from home but in saying that do you ever miss I get this sometimes do you ever miss just sometimes socializing like just 
talking to a colleague, getting a coffee together. Like I, yes. yeah, I do. You, do you ever miss just like the, the incidental socialization of working from home? Yes, definitely. And I think that's why we all have dogs. <laughs> Real bad <laughs> dogs. <laughs> Very true. Very true. I'm so sorry to hear about your toothache as well, Maddie. Uh, I feel like that can be one of those real annoying niggles. I feel like anything to do with your head, like a headache, a toothache, Mm. an earache, sinus, it feels like one of those things that you just can't distract yourself from because it's there. Yes, definitely. I also love that you've been getting a toothache from watching true crime. Like, (laughs) It's because I clench, I'm not sure. (laughs) What are you watching? (laughs) The suspense. Can I give a recommendation? It's called House of Horrors on uh, Case File Podcast. Oh, so it's a potty. Yes. And it was three episodes, there's three parts, and it was probably the most insane crime podcast I've listened to. Really? I'm not a crime podcast person. Ames, do you listen or watch true crime? No, I can't deal with the suspense. That kind of anticipatory suspense and I don't like it. (laughs) Not a fan. However, very impressed, Maddie, that you can withstand three hours of true crime. No wonder you had a toothache. That three hours of grit and anticipatory suspense. What is going to happen? Who is the murderer? Where are they going to find the body? It's too much, my little body. I find it exhausting. You know, when you watch a psychological thriller and it keeps you on the edge of your seat the whole time, mm-hmm. I find I'm exhausted by the end of those movies because my whole body is clenched and tense. I'm like, oh my God, you know, and you're trying to think about what's going to happen before it happens. Obviously, I'm getting a little bit tense just speaking about the experience. So I think. <laughs> <laughs> Leave those ones for you, Maddie. What about you, Kat? Dear Katniss, what is your pit and peak of the week? My pit and peak. So I would say that my peak would definitely be over this past weekend. I had some beautiful friends come down and visit me and we just had so much fun. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but just being able to laugh. And you know those friends that are really easy to be around, you can be really silly with. These are friends I've had since childhood and we just laughed and I haven't laughed like that in so long. We felt like we're being little kids. We're doing video cameos. We were just being silly sausages and I think that's such an important part of life and I think my little soul needed just some fun and lightness and silliness. I know that's such a big part of what makes me happy. So, so much fun spending time with them being absolutely ridiculous. I would say that my pit though, I have been quite unwell this last week. I have had some very mysterious virus. It's not covid it is not RSV. It's some kind of lingering flu that just has, I've not been able to kick. So that has been fun coping with that. But I will just say I'm on the mend and I have never appreciated clear sinuses more than when I do have them. Never take an unblocked nose for granted. It is ah, like heaven. So feeling a little bit better, but it has just not been fun of being unwell. I know it's going around at the moment. I appreciate my health now that it is coming back. So that would be my pit and peak. Ames, what about you? What would be your pit and peak of the week? Oh, I'm glad you're feeling a little bit better from not feeling well and absolutely playfulness and fun is so restorative. 
My pet and peak for the week, I think my pet has been that Miko has been through a little bit of a destructive phase this week. I've lost a few good men. I've lost a book and... <laughs> and some undergarments. And look, I would say that's simultaneously been a peak because as much as it is a little bit mildly inconvenient, it's also quite funny. And I find myself sometimes just laughing out loud at how cheeky and funny, although like I said, moderately inconvenient, losing a book and some undergarments. Some of the things that he's done have been quite funny, like getting up onto the kitchen bench and maneuvering himself to get little boxes and things like that that he shouldn't be getting. And then I just see him kind of like sneak past or run past while I'm on a session with a client and I can't do anything. It's like he's timed it perfectly or when I'm stuck there and I can't get it off him. So Pitt is simultaneously my peak in that the dogs have been very entertaining this week. But I guess moving into today's episode on core beliefs, this has been Maddie's wonderful suggestion. So popping it over to you, Maddie, why are we talking about core beliefs today? I think this topic came to me because I talk to a lot of clients who struggle with more so negative core beliefs and with that comes a lot of like low self-esteem. So I thought today it would be good to talk about what core beliefs are, how they develop and I guess how you can change them. Maddie, can you tell us a little bit more about, I guess we hear this a lot, don't we? Like core beliefs, it comes back to your core beliefs, but what do we actually mean when we're saying core beliefs? Like what are core beliefs? Our core beliefs are, I guess, how we see ourselves, other people, the world and the future. It's the central ideas that act as a lens through which every situation and life experience is seen. So, it's often those sayings that we tell ourselves and with that, we fully believe that that's true. So, those thoughts that It could be whether I'm good at this or I'm not good at this or I feel that I look a certain way, whatever it might be, that core belief is how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we see the world. They're so important, aren't they? I think core beliefs are really at the centre of who we are, you know, from childhood to who we are now. They are just so largely unconscious. They're so powerful and pivotal to how we speak to ourselves, to how we view ourselves, to how we view the world. And how we view others around us, it's so interesting because they're so unconscious that that we are actually not aware of our core beliefs and what that might be underneath. I think on the surface, what it might look like is a trigger. And then I think when we dig deep, it's it's usually a pattern of behavior or a pattern of thinking, which can line up to a core belief. Ames, how do we develop core beliefs? So how do they develop? Where do they come from? How does that all happen? I think as you were just mentioning, Kat, a lot of our core beliefs are usually developed from childhood. They end up being woven into the fabrics of how we see ourselves and how we interpret the world as well, are usually inherited from our family of origin, usually implicitly and unconsciously. And they end up being... I guess a lot of the times when we talk about core beliefs, we're usually referring to core beliefs that are quite limiting or tend to have a negative lens on which we're seeing the world or how we're interpreting or assuming 
parts of ourselves, but they can also be meta beliefs as well. A lot of the time, those limiting or quote unquote negative core beliefs are actually protective. So they've actually developed in some way or another as an adaptation out of necessity in childhood developed to serve a purpose. So I think important to understand that a lot of core beliefs develop out of necessity and with positive intention, you know, a protective part of you that actually loves you so much. And then as we grow and develop, those core beliefs can actually end up becoming quite rigid, which means they can actually become quite limiting or restrictive in our adult lives. And I guess I'm curious to get your perspective on this cat and Maddie as well in terms of how you notice these core beliefs kind of forming for people. As you said, a lot of the way that core beliefs are developed are through early life experiences, but I think as well they can grow and adapt through time as well. And that could be through media, through observing what other people do, to listening what other people say, and they continue throughout our lives. But the beliefs about ourselves often, though not always, are developed earlier in life. I think if you're experiencing, as you're saying, like limiting or negative thoughts and beliefs about yourself, it's likely you've encountered a variety or maybe one of a negative life experience that might contribute to this. So, a few examples that I've listed might be if you were mistreated, punished frequently in extreme or unpredictable manner, neglected, abandoned or abused, these experiences leave some emotional and psychological scars if you've had difficulty meeting parents' standards, so if your parents, carers, and family members often focused on your weaknesses and mistakes and rarely acknowledged your positive qualities or success, maybe not feeling like you were fitting in at home or school, so believing thoughts of I'm weird or I'm odd or I'm inferior, difficulty in meeting peer group standards, so together I think with messages conveyed by the media, feeling like you have to look a certain way, so maybe that's your skin or your body size or how you dress, being on the receiving end of other people's stress or distress, your family's place in society I think is a big one as well. So how you view yourself is not only influenced by how you treated as individuals but also how your family is viewed and treated by others in society. And then an absence of positives. So if you did not receive enough attention, uh, praise, encouragement, warmth, or affection, it could be that your basic needs were just adequately met, but no more was given. And I think that a lot of people will fall into one of those categories. And usually that is from an early life experience. Yeah, so well said, Maddie. I think it's so important to, to note how it does develop and the impact that it has on us. And a lot of them being developed really before the age of seven. So when you think about what happens to you during the ages of when you're born to the age of seven, that's where a lot of your bonds and attachments and needs should have been met. And you're right, if there's anything that hasn't been met, if there's been any lack of safety or predictability, any kind of unpredictable attachment, lack of trust in caregivers, if there's been any neglect or trauma, it really will speak to how your core beliefs develop 
So I think it might be helpful to go into what what might a core belief be? Because I think we have the language around limiting negative, which are actually, as Ames mentioned, you know, protective. I love that. I think they're all so protective. Core beliefs are inherently really black and white because when you think about them from the ages of zero to seven, the way that we view the world is very black and white, right? Think about when you're five or six, people were tall or short, people were good or bad. So, when you think about the way we think about ourselves, our core beliefs are also very black and white. There's usually not a lot of, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a lot of shades of gray. There's not a lot of psychological flexibility with them. So, core beliefs can look very much like very absolute. So, it might be, I'm not good enough. I don't fit in anywhere. I'm not worthy of love. My needs aren't important. People will leave if I set boundaries. There is something inherently wrong with me. I'm only worthy or valuable to someone if I'm productive or successful, right? So, you can see how they're so black and white in the way that they develop because at that time, that's how our our beautiful little (laughs) five to seven-year-old brain works. Of course, at five to seven, we're not having the language around it like that. We're maybe thinking, mommy and daddy, I don't know when they're going to be home, And what that might look like as a core belief is the world or people around me, people who are conditioned to love me, are unpredictable. So, I therefore learn to trust myself and only myself. So, what happens during that age very much speaks to the development of the foundations of how we view ourselves in the world, right? And so, Ames, you mentioned like what does that look like? you know, how do we see core beliefs come up? We don't see it come up. You know, we don't ever have a client that says, these are my core beliefs, right? How it might show up is I keep on having this, you know, feeling like I'm stuck in the same pattern of my relationships, that there's this thing that I can't move past. Really, I'm struggling with burnout. Just constantly feel stuck in these same cycles of staying busy, you know, people-pleasing. You know, people-pleasing can relate to a core belief of I'm only worthy if I'm accepted, yeah, or I need to change who I am to fit in, you know, or to be loved, right? So, how it looks on the surface is very different to what's happening underneath. And I think that that's, like I was saying before, that's such a tricky thing because we're not consciously aware of them. Core beliefs are so important to be aware of because often if we're not aware of them, it's really hard to firstly acknowledge them and to secondly know the impact that they're having on the surface level, you know, on our day-to-day. I would love to hear aims, core beliefs versus cognitive distortions. What is the difference there? Really interesting point, Kat. I can really hear that core beliefs are like this deeper, internalized, ingrained belief about self, kind of made up of cognitions, self-talk, how we view ourselves, as well as kind of physical and emotional components as well that might come up as sensations and memories, especially in those entrenched patterns. So, I guess when we talk about them being quite black and white and rigid and also being quite pervasive and insidious in terms of how they impact us and how we see the world, what would be the difference between a core belief and a cognitive distortion? or a thought trap? They are patterns of thinking. So, they might be things like they really are based, rooted in cognitive biases, which might be 
what might feel more familiar for people is jumping to conclusions, black and white thinking, as we are just speaking about fortune telling, you know, that often do come up, especially if you do present with anxiety. So cognitive distortion is a pattern of thinking that often is quite protective too. A core belief is much more entrenched in who we are. A cognitive distortion is the way that we think and the way that we might view a situation, but it may not be a result of who we are, our identity of how we see the world, right? It's a pattern of thinking rather than part of our identity. Yeah. I think both insinuate or or stem from fear, but a core belief is much more deeply entrenched and you will find that core beliefs often will come up again and again under a different mask. Whereas we can often use very different cognitive distortions when we're thinking or worrying about a situation. That is essentially the difference between a cognitive distortion. A distortion is the way that, and I don't like to use the word distortion, but it is a bias in the way that we think. We are hardwired to look for flaws, to predict worst case scenario, to seek safety. And we all are victim to these cognitive distortions or ways of thinking. However, our core beliefs are much more deep-rooted. Yeah, they, they usually stem on the surface as a trigger and then we'll come back down to a really similar pattern of behaviour through core beliefs. I hope that makes sense. Mandy, do you have anything to add to that? I think you covered it. The only other thing really is that core beliefs are more of a fixed thought or idea that affects how you see the world. It can be positive, negative, neutral, whereas a cognitive distortion or thinking style or way of thinking is more of an exaggerated thought pattern that develops over time and isn't always based on evidence. That's how I'm more to add and kind of understand it. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt this episode. We just want to quickly let you know all about our brand new anxiety e-course called Coming Home, How to Care for Your Anxiety. In this six-week self-paced course, we will help you to deepen your understanding of your anxiety and teach you practical ways to help you feel more calm, confident, and connected. If you've ever felt unsure about how to look after your anxiety and want to learn helpful and practical skills that actually work, then this course will be for you. From our years of clinical work and research, we found those who understood their anxiety and learnt to care for it rather than saw it as an enemy to get rid of, noticed a reduction in their anxiety and felt more empowered to manage their stress and anxiety in everyday life. We are so passionate and dedicated to assisting you build a strong foundation to look after your experiences of anxiety. If you'd like more information, pop over to our website on www.atthesitecollaborative.com.au. There's a free download of the introduction and what to expect where you can feel free to suss out the course. We will add all this information in our show notes. Now back to the episode. Core belief is more of I am. Maybe it more relates to self exactly like it kind of says, right? Like core belief is what I believe about myself. A thought trap or a cognitive distortion might be more related in in terms of like a situation. So I guess what I mean is the core belief might be a persistent feeling about myself or a persistent perception or assumption about myself, such as I am a a failure or I'm not good enough or I have to be perfect. 
kind of like a set of standards or expectations, almost like a bit of a rule book of how I have to be in order to be safe, to belong, that has been internalized or entrenched. Whereas a cognitive distortion could be a little bit more of a random occurrence that might come up as opposed to something that is more persistent and pervasive and consistent throughout my life. That's really, really wonderful to understand, I guess, those differences and the differentiation between core beliefs and cognitive distortions. What would be some examples of core beliefs? How would that show up for people? If you look at it as in what maybe some negative ways that core beliefs might show up, it could look like I get nervous talking to people I don't know at parties, I'm socially inept and I hate it. Or it could look like I couldn't understand a lot of what the instructor was saying today, I must be really stupid. It could be I'm overweight, I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm unimportant, I'm a loser, I'm unlovable, I'm not good enough. Some examples of what some negative core beliefs that people might have. Some positive examples could look like I'm smart, I'm worthy, I'm more than capable at what I do. When we're looking at types of core beliefs, I think there can be the negative, there can be positive, but they can also be neutral. And I think it really just depends on the person and um, the experiences that they've had to where how they come to that belief. Ames, I'll throw it over to you. How do you identify core beliefs? Like if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, okay, how might I know? How would I kind of get to identifying a core belief? That is a really, really wonderful question. How do I identify core beliefs? Because I think as we were mentioning, that is where it becomes quite tricky is that oftentimes they're really difficult to identify because they are often implicit and often unconscious. So I think a couple of ways that we can look at identifying core beliefs are what are the assumptions or the perceptions that I have in situations. And one little reflection that I will often offer clients who may have quote unquote negative core beliefs or or more of that I'm not enough or have to be perfect pattern around core beliefs and, and how they see themselves is differentiating emotion to perception or emotion to interpretation. So there is a huge difference between feeling upset and perceiving that I've been rejected or that I've failed. We can't actually feel failure. Failure is not an emotion. It's a perception. So why am I perceive that I've failed? Because I don't see myself as successful or I don't see myself as good enough. So I think that can be a really great way to start to identify core beliefs is differentiating emotion versus perception, emotion versus assumption or interpretation. I can feel upset. I can feel hurt. But what is the story I have around that? Our brains are such meaning maker machines and we often jump to our perceptions of the past because that is what's familiar and and that is how we have made sense of familiar discomfort or pain and suffering. So when might be the first time that I felt like this and how did I make sense of that? So, for example, I might have a core belief that everything's my fault and I'm responsible for everything. 
okay, well, where is the first time I remember having that narrative or that assumption? Perhaps, you know, I didn't have a lot of emotional availability as a child. And so I internalized my feelings and it was my fault because that functioned to give me a a locus of control. If it's my fault, if I'm responsible for everything, then I can fix it and I can be okay. Getting to the underlying feeling, I might actually be quite scared or I might have felt alone. And if I feel alone and no one's there for me and it's my fault, well, then that dependence and that reliability comes from me fixing it. So I think emotion versus perception can be a really wonderful way to start to identify core beliefs and also start to shift core beliefs that may no longer be serving us by creating some space between the emotion and the perception. What about you, Kat? How would you start to identify core beliefs that may be below the surface of conscious awareness? I love emotion versus perception. I think that's such a brilliant way to explain and understand how they develop and why, you know, and and how to identify them. I think it might be good to give an example here, right, to to make it really clear that usually it's underneath something that has triggered us because, as Ames was mentioning, underneath something that's triggered us is a story that we tell ourselves, is an assumption that we have about ourselves, others, or the world. So say, for example, you... This is kind of a a classic one. You write to a friend, you text a friend, and they don't respond. You know, it's been a couple of days, you haven't heard back from them. That might be triggering for some people, right? Like, and if you experience something like this, it might be a perceived rejection from this friend. What stories are you telling yourself? What might be coming up for you? What assumptions might you have? Often our brain may not go to, oh, maybe they're just really busy. You know, maybe they've just got their own stuff going on. More than likely, what our brain will do, as Ames was mentioning, it's that locus of control. What have I done? Yeah, like how much more likely is it that our brain will go straight to, what have I done here? Is there something wrong? It's a blame of self. Yeah. So I think when you look at it like that, when we're, we're triggered kind of on our conscious awareness and then we, we dig a little bit deeper, there's a story that is perpetuating for you. There's an assumption that you have about a situation. So if they're not writing back to me that, you know, maybe I feel a sense of rejection. As Ames was mentioning, what is that sense of rejection? What story is that giving you? What story is that telling you? What are you getting out of that? And that could be, oh my gosh, you know, I have a core belief of not feeling good enough for someone. Maybe I identify being a people pleaser. I'm worried about that I've done the wrong thing or said the wrong thing and made them upset because people's emotions are my responsibility. So you can see how it can trickle down. When something happens on the surface for us, it can trickle down and reinforce a core belief. And often you might find that when we're identifying core beliefs, Ames has been mentioning that really good question of, and if this happened for you, if your friend didn't write back, what does that say about you? That's a really good reflection. And what does this say about you? What does it say about you that your friend didn't write back to you or reply to your text message? And then someone might say, I feel, you know, says that I'm not a good friend. And so then what does that say about you that you're not a good friend? And what that might be is that, oh, I feel like I'm not valuable or I'm not good enough. What story am I telling myself? Where has this come from? Who told me that? But also what does that say about you if this is true? Is a really good way to identify and dig down to what core beliefs you might have. It is wonderful to do in therapy, learning your core beliefs, because we often, because of these cognitive distortions that we spoke about earlier, 
it's hard to see it from another perspective. It's hard to dig down. Our brain doesn't want to change our core beliefs because they are inherently protective and they can be really uncomfortable to identify. So I do recommend if you're listening to this, you wanting to know a bit more about your core beliefs, absolutely you can do some self-development, but sometimes learning in therapy and then chatting through this with someone can be really helpful. So Maddie, throw it over to you. How do you see or how do you feel that core beliefs shape your relationships? Good question. I think like what we've been talking a lot about with how they've, you know, you develop your core beliefs from early childhood, they can adapt, they can change over time as well. How you view yourself and others will also determine in a relationship what you believe you deserve, how you're treated, all those sorts of things. And if you sit more with that limiting or negative core beliefs, I think that a lot of the time that's where a lot of insecurities and jealousy can come up in relationships, questioning your worthiness with your partner. Maybe, you know, you just fluked it that you got them or whatever it might be. There's, there can be a lot of insecurities. And I think going on more of a tangent around down this direction, but a lot of attachment I think comes into this with relationships and feeling insecure. I think if you sit with more positive core beliefs, you will probably feel more of a secure attachment in a relationship. And if you have more negative or limiting core beliefs, then it's likely you'll feel more insecure, maybe more anxious or maybe more avoidant. What about you, Amy? I feel like you'll probably have heaps to add around attachment and how core beliefs can shape relationships. Absolutely. I think attachment plays a fundamental role in our core beliefs, how we perceive the world and how we perceive ourselves in relationships. I think maybe even using secure attachment as an example here, oftentimes when we have a secure attachment, we perceive ourselves as worthy and deserving of our needs being met. That's really important, right? Because if I have this core belief that I'm undeserving of love or that I'm not good enough, then sometimes that can cause a bit of a blockage for me being able to receive love, which can make it quite difficult. It's almost like we end up enacting our core fears of rejection or abandonment because we don't perceive ourselves as being worthy or deserving of love. So I think having a secure attachment and having the perception that I am lovable and that I'm inherently good just for being me and I can take on feedback and I can accept responsibility and I can acknowledge my part in the relationship as well also allows for this openness of reciprocity in relationship. Understanding that attachment is this internal template or or map, okay, of how we see the world and how we give and receive love absolutely plays a fundamental role in core beliefs because how I think and feel about myself ultimately is going to impact how I give and receive love, how I trust. Often those with avoidant attachment style find it really, really difficult to trust that not only love can be safe, but the world is a safe place. And that can make things really tricky in relationship patterns as well, you know, and in, in terms of how responsive I am to my partner. I think attributing blame as well, going back to those assumptions that we have. So if I have this assumption that people will leave, then I might project that 
fear or that core belief that everyone will leave onto my partner and assume that they do things on purpose because they don't really care about me and that they do things for their own personal gain because they're going to leave eventually. So there are so, so many ways, I guess, is this link of, of attachment and core beliefs because it is that little map or that little blueprint, which is kind of the basis of, of how we see ourselves in, in the world and relationships. Absolutely. I think that's such a great point, Maddie. Going into our last little segment of this episode, Kat, can we change core beliefs? Are core beliefs something that can be expanded upon or integrated if we have identified that there are some limiting core beliefs getting in the way? Can we change them? And if so, what are some things that we can do to change or expand some rigid or limiting core beliefs? Short answer to that is yes, we can absolutely change our core beliefs. But in order to change them, we first must understand them. We first must understand the function of them. And we first must understand why they exist and what is perpetuating them. Because once a core belief develops, what our beautiful brain does is continues to use information it receives from the world to reinforce and strengthen it. It will often not use information that challenges this core belief because that is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable to change our deep-rooted beliefs of self, others, and the world. It is not an easy thing to do. It is quite dismantling and uncomfortable. So I would say that absolutely our brain is wonderful in its plasticity. It's very malleable. We have the power and capacity to create new neural pathways every day. However, it does take work. It does take time. What I find in clinical work is often we'll get this question of, okay, well, I acknowledge this core belief and I see that it's maybe not helpful or it's not serving me anymore. What can I do? How can I change it? There's this kind of want, this quick urgency to change it. And I think it does take time. If it's been 20, 25, 30 years that you have built and reinforced and perpetuated this core belief, it's going to take time to work through. I think Firstly, understanding the protective mechanism of your core belief is so, so important. We cannot change something we don't understand and we don't have compassion for. I think when working through this, doing some work through childhood or inner child work is to where has this come from? Where have you learned this? Who has told you this? What has this protected you from? Because as soon as we can start to create compassion and create really curious inquiry into these core beliefs, we can then see the, the mechanism that drives them underneath. Okay, we cannot change what we can't understand. So, they are absolutely changeable, but I think in order to get there and start to shift our perception of it, we first must go back. We first must understand why they developed and why they continue to exist. In order to change a core belief, we really need to challenge challenge and make ourselves uncomfortable. <laughs> so it will always take the path of least resistance because that uses the least resources, right? From a very neurological lens, changing a deep-rooted belief about ourselves, others, or the world takes resource and capacity and time. This is not a quick process, but it is something that can be shifted. And I think the first step of that is that compassion and curious inquiry. And then it's really starting to unpack, well, how else might I see this belief that I have? Is there another way? Other perceptions I can have of this belief? Was that true? Looking back as an adult, was what I learned about the world true? How else could I have seen that? What else could have been happening for me? I think as well, starting to dismantle that and challenge that and change that, it really does, you know, need repetition 
and time because your brain is so skilled in seeking out the information that confirms this core belief to starting to challenge it. It's going to take, you know, that, that little bit of time, but it's absolutely so, so possible. It just means that work around it, that challenging around it. And what can happen is this incredible, incredible thing where we can start to find new information and maybe start to create a new core belief, you know, a more realistic and more honest and truthful core belief that serves us now and is usually more adaptive and functional, right? So, for example, we spoke about that core belief of people leave, okay? We would explore that. We would understand where does that come from? What has that protected you from? How has that been reinforced through your life? But is that true? Does everybody leave? And then what might happen is you think, well, no, not everybody leaves. So then therefore, maybe the new core belief could be, yes, some people have left me and it's been absolutely devastating, but also some people haven't. We can kind of shift this to a new, more realistic core belief, which your brain will then start to find evidence for. Right. And that's where this new neural pathway will kind of be created because your brain loves to find evidence for what it believes is true. In a very long winded answer to your question, sorry, didn't mean to bring neurology into this. Yes, core beliefs can absolutely be changed. It just takes that like repetitive compassion and curious inquiry, that kind of ability to sit in that discomfort. Maddie, do you have anything to add to changing or, you know, when you're doing your clinical work with clients? What might that look like if, you know, you maybe have a client who's wanting to change a core belief? I agree with absolutely everything you said. I think that my approach is very similar with first, you're wanting to sift through the layers of whatever you're telling yourself, whatever that core belief is. You're really just wanting to get to the root, the bottom layer, I guess. And then by doing that, you're aware of it. And I think whenever you're trying to change anything, it's always the first step is just being aware that that's what you're doing or what you're telling yourself or what's happening. And then, as you said, the next step is challenging it. Some examples of what you could ask yourself if this is something that you're finding challenging or start wanting to start to challenge your core beliefs is asking yourself, what evidence do I have for this negative view of yourself? Or what experiences do you use to justify this negative core belief? Try to uncover what you base your belief on. You can ask yourself a number of questions. A couple that I've noted down is, are there any current problems I'm having to base this belief on? So problems with depression or anxiety, relationship problems, Am I condemning myself because I need help and can't manage alone? So turning to friends, family, or mental health professionals. Am I condemning myself based on past mistakes I've made? So failing at school, trouble with the law, infidelity in the past relationships. Or am I condemning myself based on specific weaknesses of mine? So not being academically minded, not being good at sport, so on. So there are a few examples of some of the questions that you could start to ask yourself. I think that challenging core beliefs could be helpful to do either journaling, talking to a therapist or someone that you trust to kind of get those thoughts out of your head and either put it on paper or talking with someone. And then as Kat was saying, developing a alternative core belief to replace your old one. you needing to, I guess, once you start challenging it and going, okay, maybe if, for example, if it's I'm not good enough, then almost giving yourself something else to believe and with time starting to tell yourself, oh, I am good enough, letting the evidence, I guess, follow. So, 
if it's, for example, something that you struggle with is telling yourself you're stupid, it's changing it to more of, I guess, a saying as I'm capable in many ways rather than I'm not stupid. So rather than what you aren't, more of what you are. And the other thing that I tell my clients all the time is that thoughts aren't fact. And I think that it can be so deceiving in our heads what we believe is true and our core beliefs are beliefs because we believe them. And they're often those thoughts that are running through our head, usually that negative self-talk or low self-esteem, whatever it is that you might be experiencing It feels so true. And so just reminding yourself that if you're telling yourself that you're stupid or you can't do something or you're not good enough, if the first thing you can tell yourself is that, hey, this isn't a fact, that's the first step in starting to challenge it. And that's how I would, I guess, approach starting to change some core beliefs. Amazing from both of you. I think those are such good tips and such pearls of wisdom as we tend to say in offering people a little bit of direction to go into if this is something that is resonating. And I wholeheartedly agree with both of you. I think that is so important to understand the function and the purpose of how our core beliefs are functioning for us, getting to the root, so to speak. The only other thing that I would add in terms of attachment and core beliefs in terms of relational components, you know, the emotional bond that develops between adult romantic partners is partly a function of the same motivational system. The attachment behavioral system that gives rise to emotional bond between infants and their caregivers. So really understanding and making sense of childhood experiences is so important. And like Kat and Maddie, you're both saying maybe doing this with a therapist, you know, kind of paying attention to what we needed in childhood versus what we expect from our partner and the beliefs we have around some of those unmet needs. I think attachment strategies are entrenched, hardwired patterns of behavior that operate from implicit memory, which means they're embodied. So there is a real physiological psychosomatic component of that so I think sometimes when it is really that early stage of starting to recognize needs and identifying core beliefs working with that fight flight appease freeze response that can be readily activated can be helpful like noticing what security and safety feels like in my body versus what perceived threat feels like Kat you were mentioning that that threat response of maybe not getting a message back from a friend and what rejection feels like in my body versus what acceptance and approval feels like in my body because our adult attachment will recreate versions of that based on perceptions of the past because our brain jumps to what is familiar. So I think sometimes working within that lens as well and working with that bottom-up approach can be really helpful. I also think looking at attachment and core beliefs an understanding function also draws us to appreciation and compassion for how our wise body and brain have put in so much effort to regulate us and keep us safe. For example, responding quickly to threats, being independent because support hasn't been there for me, caring a lot about my performance and focusing on my job and productivity. I think sometimes showing compassion for 
the huge effort that our mind and body puts into regulation and safety can actually really help us when we are feeling triggered. I think sometimes it's really overwhelming and defeating and and can even put us into a place of despair, especially when we feel like we've been stuck in a pattern for a really long time. We kind of forget to look at actually our brain and our body have been doing these things in an effort to regulate, in an effort to keep us safe. And like Kat, you were saying, showing some compassion for the wisdom of our organism and its ability to do this. I think it's important to be aware of both. So being aware that Say, for example, if I have an avoidant attachment style that I might be prone to, all or nothing thinking, overgeneralizing, mistrust, having core beliefs about people leaving or needing to go into that self-protection mode or feeling small or inferior, but also that this protection, this very, very wise mechanism allows me to respond so quickly to threats, allows me to be very independent. And I think integrating both of those parts because both are really important. So yes, there is this part of me that needs safety and security and certainty and noticing triggers around that and noticing when I suddenly feel those sensations in my body but also being aware of this wise, healthy part of me that has always been there. Maybe just when I'm feeling threatened, I have these other really active parts that show up to make sure that I'm protected. And then I think the only other thing that I would add to that is just repeating myself what I was saying a little bit before, exploring the feelings and the emotions and the difference between what I'm feeling and what my emotions are versus the assumptions, the interpretations, and the perceptions that I have. And what is the story I tell myself versus what am I actually feeling? And can I accept and can I acknowledge what I'm feeling? And what might be helpful when I'm feeling that versus the perception that I have because that's what's familiar. Bringing it back to what is happening right now, right now, in this moment, what am I feeling and what can I give myself with what I'm feeling right now? And maybe noticing when that anxiety rises and and practicing a grounding response first, having that pause so that I can respond to what I'm feeling. But like we've all been saying, things like journaling, therapy can really help with getting you to that point because that can be a little bit overwhelming trying to integrate that by yourself as well. Echoing basically what you've both said, I think you both answered that question brilliantly and absolutely nailed it. So thank you, Maddie, so much for coming on today and carrying the team and bearing with us. Yeah, I want to add a quick tip. journaling or talking to a therapist can be really helpful. But if you're just wanting something to do at home, the it's called CCI, which is stands for Center of Clinical Interventions, have a it's a nine module workbook for improving self-esteem. But their module eight, developing balanced core beliefs, it's a really great resource. Pretty much just gives you a bit of information, gets you to answer a few questions. So if you're wanting something to do at home by yourself to just start to have a think about it, module eight, developing balance core beliefs, I think would be really helpful. But sorry, I just wanted to add that in there. No, thank you so much, Maddie. That is so helpful. Love to have resources to recommend. So thank you so much for recommending that. And again, really, really appreciate 
all your wonderful knowledge and recommendations. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Well, that is all we have time for today. Thank you guys so much for listening in. We hope you got something out of that and Maddie will actually pop that resource in the show notes so people can have a little look at that. So thank you so much for joining us today and thank you Ames and Maddie as always for your wonderful words of wisdom and we will catch you in a few weeks' time. Hey guys, just adding a disclosure, this episode is not intended to replace personalized psychological advice and it is always intended to be general in nature. This episode does not take into account your own individual experiences. We always recommend you seek personalized professional psychological support. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you want to support the show, it would mean the world to us if you could leave a review. This also helps us sneak our way into more ears. If you'd like to follow us or learn more, please follow us at the Psychology Sisters or at the site collaborative on instagram if you'd like more info on our private practice please visit www.thesitecollaborative.com all of this info will be in our show notes we will see you next time guys bye